Hey, everybody. It's Thursday. Welcome to the Art Fight Podcast. It looks like everybody's here. We just had a little bit of a technical glitch, but now we're now Come we on, man, nobody, nobody would have known. Nobody would have known. Wasn't it, so. Didn't anybody see that false start? Nobody saw that. Oh, if they're they got the notification that it came back up. So our listeners queued up. It, just like waiting with trembling hands on their <laughs> yeah. keyboards, just waiting yeah. for the podcast to start. Give me some of that. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, we're. Uh, it's good to be here, guys. If, if you heard the beginning of the last show, you heard me saying that it's, it's an exciting time in the fight world. We're just about to have three three big cards in the next 10 days. But instead of talking about the, the art in fighting, Brian, we're here to talk about the fight to make great art with our guest, Brianna Bass. How are you doing, Brianna? I'm doing well. How are you? Yeah, we're doing great. Thank you so much for being with us. You're prompt. You're right here on time, like a real pro. And and I've been I've been trying to get ahead of myself in terms of scheduling guests and stuff. And I'm glad that we were able to get you on right away. I just saw on your Instagram you were sharing um, some posts of your your dad came and visited you on the campus up at Yale, where you're at the School of Art, getting your master's degree in fine art. Just a little bit of background, real quick. You were in uh, you were based in Knoxville, Tennessee, for a long time. You went to UT. Is that right? UT Chattanooga. UT Chattanooga. Okay. But then you ended up living in Knoxville. Mm -hmm. And then while you were in Knoxville, you and your 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 cohorts were constantly running back and forth between Knoxville and Nashville. And I've you know had the pleasure to meet all you guys and find out about all the stuff you're you're up to and doing. And I think the last time I saw you was probably like at Red Arrow Gallery or something. And Shortly after that, I realized that you had applied to and been accepted at Yale School of Art. And I'm going to make you like start off by just bragging about yourself a little bit, just bragging <laughs> about yourself, just to give everybody a really good first impression. <laughs> but uh, Tell us a little bit about Yale School of Art. Is it or is it not like the premier MFA program you could possibly get into right now? You guys are gone. We're here. We're oh, here. Okay. We're just we're just focusing on you. Yeah. Oh, okay. yeah. yeah. Trust <laughs> the camera, Brianna. Let the camera tell you what to do. <laughs> yeah. So the it's ranked as the number one painting program in the country. Mm -hmm. So I was very excited to be accepted. I had a, applied for seven schools and got into five of them. And uh, thank you. So turned down several fully funded situations to take a chance on this program. And it's been amazing so far. I think it deserves the attention that it gets. The professors are the best, The my peers. I have a lot of painting peers and they all make amazing work and so it's an environment that's really saturated in the language of painting and and saturated with people who are 100% dedicated and driven and so I I don't think I could ask for a better environment to be in I don't think that's bragging about myself very <laughs> you, you avoided the bragging very gracefully <laughs> yeah <laughs> It's a, it's a bit of a fight move right there. I'm like coming out all aggressive, making you brag about yourself. And then you're just like, Ooh, you just slipped it. And then you're like dancing around doing your own thing. So very well done. Well done. Uh, one point bass. I do think though, I do think that one of the other things that, that makes your Instagram an interesting place to be is seeing all of your recent work and the fact that you do, is the exhibit still up right now or did it already come down? You just had an exhibit there of your work, which is pretty impressive. The show at Yale during the fall was actually a group show. All right. Do what? 
Did you have more than one piece in it? I had two pieces in it. Okay. I, I didn't have a focal part in the show, but it is, it's down now. Mm-hmm. Um, the, I did have a show at the very beginning of the semester at Missouri State University, and that was okay. a solo show. The one that for that show, I was focusing on paintings about music. And so that may be what is that may be what you're thinking of as I think I think I mixed those two up in my brain as I was just like scrolling through all this all the posts what uh I also you- set my studio up to look like a show I totally <laughs> cleared it out you might have completely fooled me with that one I would have been like this is really impressive <laughs> <laughs> Online, it is what you make it <laughs> <laughs> you just move everything behind the camera take a shot move everything behind the camera take another shot I didn't not do that what about um you you know it's you mentioned the fact that you're making these paintings about music and i know that it gets complicated but can you do your best to describe to people what your work looks like right now yeah so the i I think the way that i have been working is like through many theses seasonally in a way. So over the summer was when I was focusing more intently on the music transcription. So that was that was like a particular rabbit hole that I went down that the goal of that was to try and, and visualize how music behaves in terms of how color and color harmony behaves. Mm-hmm. And taking the musical s- scale, like the 12 kind of half notes that make an, I, I don't have very, yeah, an octave. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. But, um, and then applying that to 12 increments along the chromatic scale. Mm-hmm. And so, um, translating sheet music through that system into the visual fields of color. So I could see the sort of how music descends in terms of how the color goes up and down a rainbow and how things shift and relate to one another in that way. Um, so are you, are you a synesthete perchance? No, <laughs> but that, I think that's a really interesting concept to use as a tool. So I have, I'm hard of hearing. And so the way that I was trying to use color to explain music was a way for me to have better access to music. It's not like a pre-existing synesthetic condition, but it's the implementation Repeti- the repetitive int- implementation of this system to try and train myself in a synesthetic way and to open up my mind to a synesthetic experience. So I think of it as like a prosthetic synesthesia. Oh, uh, yeah. Nice. So nice. that's the- that in vinyl on the wall next time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, band yeah. name right there. Band yeah. name right there. <laughs> The double album, Brian. But I do want to say real quick, though, that yeah, when you were explaining that, I was thinking it's disassociative in some way, not in the strangely negative psychological way or whatever, but in the way of because you are hard of hearing, you are already positionally in a slightly more abstracted perception of sound. And so you're it's I'm not saying that's it's not a direct plug into synesthesia per se, but it is. This common, similar, predicated concept of I'm already outside of what is normative perception. And I think that is what has enabled the transition into the work that I was doing over the fall, which wasn't as directly working on translating and exploring music and sound, but um, 
thinking about yeah, this experience of sound through the lens of hearing loss and through having issues with conversation. And so analogizing colors with words, it's hard to explain what my paintings look like, but like having, when you say a sentence to someone, it takes every bit of the sentence to define the rest of what you're hearing. Otherwise you're just getting these little phonetic bits. Mm -hmm. So thinking about color as, is, is it, a particular color, a word, or is it a phonetic bit? Ah, uh, and so really interesting, and because that's almost like the stuff of learning language. Yeah, it's really interesting. Like the last semester, I've been trying to use these frameworks that, like the spectrum or red, green, red, green, red, green, that by their nature kind of define the color, so that you understand the color as this solid, identifiable, sort of unchangeable thing, which is antithetical to what color actually is, which is shifting and always contingent upon what's around it. Running, like running these systems through processes of change to produce these shadows, which I'm trying to think about what those mean in terms of, in terms of the identity of a color and language and things not heard. And then also, yeah, they end up relating back to that like visceral experience of sound mm. um, and noise and silence and what the process is when you read a painting from from top to bottom and the and you stop being able to name the colors that you see and mm. um, how that relates to to yeah the experience of interrupted communication so what you're saying is you're just hacking around and having fun with it and uh, <laughs> sometimes you guys get super baked sometimes you're just hanging <laughs> out sometimes you look at what you did the next morning when you're all hung over and you're like man that's brilliant and other times you're like this is terrible what was i thinking yeah i can't, I can't turn this nice in. at all <laughs> it's basically that is what i'm hearing yeah, yeah. For sure. <laughs> <laughs> no it's interesting you remind me a lot of in a way because you're doing a different take on it and certainly like your use of color is different but we had lindsey davis came on our show uh last year sometime i guess or maybe it was even longer than that and she was doing lots of work at the time that was black and white and but doing similar things where she's like putting blacks against whites and then putting this gray in there and in your mind's eye these whites are different colors but in actuality they're the exact same color but they read differently because of the colors around them and yours is similar but yours is different to me because of the fact that you're actually dealing with full-blown the whole spectrum of color just yeah. like you're trying to look at the whole spectrum of a musical scale and i think it's i think it's pretty rad another thing i like about about these is that i dig the way like to me it's like the the sort of need for variety that i have means i just want to work in i want to do something creative in a completely different medium and if i already did something in this medium then now i want to do it in a totally different way and i really admire it when i see people who are able to find like a thing and then just like mine it like just mine the hell out of it and i feel like when i see all these works together they look they look similar they all look like yours but there are actually lots of differences between them, even though we're essentially dealing with stripes and blocks of color. <laughs> and I would be like, okay, I did three of those. Uh, that's it. I'm over it. You know what I mean? But you're just like, no, there's this whole other subtle way I could do 12 more paintings. <laughs> that's something I'm thinking about a lot this coming spring, sort of something that came up in 
in my final reviews, like on one hand, I had some professors saying that they could see like the variety through through the depth and then some other professors saying, pointing out that when you're at graduate school, you can, you don't have to make, you don't have to corporealize a complete idea. Yeah. So this semester I'm thinking like, what does it look like if I spread out and just ask as many questions as I can about the experience of color and like about media and to just ask myself a question for two seconds and then do it and then reflect on it later and see what I learned from asking that question. And does it have mm-hmm. to be that I made a good piece, but it's that I learned like another right. piece of aesthetic language from doing this action. But yeah, I do. In the, but then on the other hand, I'm like, I know I'm going to keep making these paintings because <laughs> and I'm done. And then I'm like, ah, oh, but what would happen if I do it with three colors on the bottom instead of two colors on the bottom? And yeah, and the, and then the process of making these like minute variations does teach me a lot about the way that color behaves. And it's one of those things that I don't I can't visualize it until it gets out in front of me. And then, yeah. and then it's like, where do I go from here? And I don't know. I'm obsessed with the process too, because it has this, it's like a very meditative process and it has helped me so much being so structural mm-hmm. and organized. And that has not been my brain in the past. And so through making these paintings, I feel like I've trained myself towards this like interesting piece in organization. And uh, um, I was going to ask you about that because how much of a control freak are you, Brian? <laughs> <I'm not laughs> I, mean, I don't which, know. Which of, which of these? Actually, are a control freak, but no, I, I think I'm, I feel more like I'm on the edge of everything slipping through my fingers all the time. Brian, what were you trying oh, to say? Oh no, I was just gonna. I was just gonna ask. I, I couldn't help but even at a, at first glance, be like, okay, where there's got to be some sort of a zen in this, or there's got to be because. Uh, on the front, there's a lot of scientific things going on, or clinical approach, or you know, very clean in its in the sort of the entree. And then once uh, I would imagine the, the act of perceiving in person, probably more likely, but right still even with the images, but just it feels like that there's some something. Not to say that those the front end of the process is cold, but it's really just you're just setting. What I hear you saying is you're setting up a baseline of some sort of order to then reflect things against. And that's the same as the way that you talk about the essence of a, a color has got to be, it's contingent upon its its context, as you said, or whatever. Anyway, I guess I was very curious about, yeah, the Zen of it in terms of perception, creation, and it seems like it's got something a little deeper than that. And by the way, one of the first thoughts I had that's not really relevant to in an, in a, in an equivalence kind of sense, but in terms of just the one of the first things I thought was, you're always comparative when you see something you haven't seen before. And one of the first things I thought of was Barnett Newman sort of zipper, that era style abstract expressionist type of thing. And it was very those that time and that era has it's you're drinking from a fire hose of zen uh (laughs) right this is a little bit more like this could be a desired outcome or this could be part of the experience or it could be something where it's like no i just think about it as this kind of these are just iterations being put forth in a formulaic way which is there's nothing wrong with that either but i'm glad to hear that there's a a sort of a, a human feeling sort of piece of it to you that seems pretty personal yeah there's something i probably want to get past at some point in the future is I do feel like I try to withhold a degree of like emotion and like an expressive 
Now we're getting to it. Now we're getting to it, Joe. <laughs> this is why we make the big no bucks. Feelings. No feelings. This is why we make the big bucks. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah, but I think that is something that, I don't know, I maybe in my paintings is not where I want to deal with my feelings exactly. It's like where I want to... But at the same time, I am dealing with with my feelings. So, but it's, I want to have that moment where like I have my ruler on the canvas and I get this close to it and I make Mm. like a hundred like tiny tick marks and where you watch the pencil go up and down the canvas, like Agnes Martin kind of, there's always that phase to the paintings and then, yeah, and then painting it, it's not like there's no, the only stress is like, is this color like jumping too far or not far enough? Is it going to make it to blue by the end of the f- frame? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, the decisions are, the decisions are smaller. Yeah, like, so for this one that you have pulled up there, it would Mm -hmm. be like, is it going to get light enough? Is it going to get light enough at the same pace as the other? But there's also not that much stress either, because the contextualization of what the painting is telling you that you're seeing, it's telling you that you're seeing a rainbow, it's telling you that all the colors are getting lighter. So to a degree, I think your mind fills in the blanks when it's not perfect. Yeah. But yeah, so it's about that. It's just about watching that brushstroke run out of paint and then getting another scoop and like Mm -hmm. watching that run out of paint. So think while I say I'm not like dealing with emotions in the paintings, I'm also dealing with, I think, a lot of anxiety within the paintings. And like I was talking about before with my issues with hearing, I was compulsively making these rainbow paintings and I realized that it was because I wanted to have the opportunity to visualize like all of the data like enumerated in one place and to have access to something completely when I was feeling like in my everyday life, I just every day I was like, I can't hear what people are saying. And it's just stressful and and difficult to try and piece things together that are out of order just so that you can have a regular everyday conversation with people. Mm-hmm. And so that's the kind of like emotion that I feel like I'm dealing with through the paintings, which is like actually a really deep sense of loss and, and anxiety and all of that. But I think through making mm-hmm. the, the paintings in this way, it's been really healing for me. It's probably interesting too, to have each one is essentially, whether you like it or not, a portrait or a memoir or a capture of a time and a place. And so even if no one else understands it, that personally you are with music that I make or whatever. I listen to something that I made whatever, 20 years ago, and I get taken right back to that place. And I don't think that people talk enough about how it's almost important to, to make or create just for, even for that purpose alone, because you're just going to have these manifestations and projections and mirrors of times that you don't have to bury yourself in nostalgia per se, but you do need to remind yourself about where you came from and also, it's maybe a mechanism sometimes to pat yourself on the back. As much as it's awful sometimes to look back on past work, you can give yourself a pass and be like, okay, that was a long time ago. I was learning. I'm a human being. But at the same time, there's some essence there. Joe, I know we've talked about this with with music a lot, where it's when you go back through, especially now during the pandemic, everybody's been going back through their archives. I can't tell you how many friends of mine have said, check this old archival tape of our band or mm-hmm. like everybody's been pulling it all back out and nobody cares about how shitty it sounds. Nobody cares about even, even a lot of the technique or the playing. All that is people are really caring about and sharing this stuff is it's all about just this kind of 
this spirit and this energy, the time, whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of, as you're talking, Brianna, about this notion of your, whether you're wearing emotion like a backpack through this or not, or whatever, it's I, the whole time I'm thinking, I don't know how you, you can't escape it. Everything you are is, I don't know. Is that a sentence? Yeah. yeah. I, I love that you bring that up because that's something that I talk about a lot, but I've, I don't feel like I ever hear people really bring it up the way that making something like making a piece of art or making, um, music, which is not really something that I do, but um, the way that it does act like a, it just sticks everything in like stuff that's not even important. It's just like a big, like ball of glue. And then you can, yeah, you can go back <laughs> to it forever apart. And you're like, ah, oh, I remember the smell of what, where I was, or I don't know how, why it works like that, but it's almost like worth the process of making something wherever you are, just for the sake of Doodle in class is basically what I'm saying, but um, mm -hmm. you know, the, yeah, I don't know why, why it works like that, but I think that is like a real treasure of making things. Yeah, for sure. I, I was just listening to, what's his name? Who's the guy who recorded the Beastie Boys and Johnny Cash? Rick Rubin. Yeah, Rick Rubin. Uh, he's got a podcast called I'm Rich. No, it's not called I'm Rich. He's like a Zen <laughs> rich guy. <laughs> but his podcast the other day, oh, I can't think of the top of my head, but they had Jim James from My Morning Jacket on there. And he was talking about how he's one of the, some people get like very conceptual or whatever, or they're, or if you're like a big pop star, then you got like 20 people telling you which songs need to be on the album and whatnot, whatnot. But he's, the songs just hang together because they were the songs we wrote like when we left the tour and my guitarist had the baby and then the pandemic hit and then we were able to do that concert together and then we went back on tour and all of a sudden it's okay we need a new album now and it's this is the new stuff you know what i mean but the new stuff just happens to be the stuff we did during this period or whatever and so it's not strictly diaristic necessarily but it ends up being that anyway because it it's representative of the production of a certain time period yeah. And you can't always see that when you're in it, but then looking yeah. back. Yeah. Yeah. I've given myself permission to take all this music stuff that I've made over the last few months and create volumes and just release them as they are. Because I think that's, if there's anything that should be the, the takeaway or whatever from this time is when you talk about anxiety or all these other things, and you see a lot of fodder about this in sort of social media, but it's really true. You got to give yourself permission to just chill the fuck out and just this is not the, yes here's my half-assed work thank you like yeah, i was yeah. able to come up with that or whatever yeah. and just and not have this burden of perfectionism or anything like that and really the, the perfectionist approach to me became how do i most accurately just in an unfiltered way make what is for me right now without any pretense without any shine without any direction or without thinking about where it might go or what might happen with it it's hap it's all happened faster and it all came from you have to learn something new create something new and then get it out and man i just i'm real sensitive to having stuff laying around so i'm just getting this stuff out joe's been doing the same everybody's a lot of people been doing the same everybody's got a new business everybody's got a new idea everybody's got a new thing i just made up about 20 or so pieces of music that no one will care about 
at all with any sincerity. It's not going to change any lives, but I'm so glad that I did it. You know what I mean? And it's it's necessary right now to just let it go, man. Just don't. Uh, now is not the time to be like super critical. Granted, you're in, in, in a MFA program, so that's also you do have your peers and a mutual responsibility. And for me, it's just about how, what can I do to make Joe Nolan happy? To get for Joe, you, to, for, I want Joe to give me a thumbs up. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, but for you, Brianna, you actually have a cohort. Yeah, but the, the level of perfectionism doesn't necessarily have anything to do with your work ethic, I think. So I, I well, am so. totally trying to be where I think what you're talking about is like being mindful and like making these small decisions and just like making things and getting them out and make asking these questions that feel relevant like that day. And yeah, I feel like being at Yale, there was a different kind of perfectionism in the beginning that I probably put on myself. And I'm like, I'm at this major Ivy League institution that's I have to make like the every piece I make has to land like with a resounding like (laughs) boom. But yeah, but that there's a degree of like sincerity that can come with what happens if I don't make a single piece that works this coming semester. And that, yeah. that may not be doing any disservice to my cohort as long as I'm putting the time in the studio and the sincerity into the questions that I'm asking and like the honesty with myself and just be like, I brought you a hundred pieces of something <laughs> 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 <Pretty> nicely. <laughs> so yeah, I'm trying to get to reorient my perfectionism into being like, I really want more for myself in terms of the peace and openness and and honesty within the studio, because ultimately I'm looking for a sustainable studio practice that can last me forever. And kind of think some of the things, sometimes if you do weird stuff in graduate school, it like validates it forever. Mm -hmm. Be like, I used to put pennies through a <laughs> grinder, coffee grinder in grad school. So that's what I do now. Yeah. Um, so I need to like. That's the penny. It. That's the penny girl. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, like branching out and just not being afraid to ask questions and let things go that aren't going to change people's lives and just put things out. Yeah. The world. I appreciate, like we said a minute ago about how you've gotten this positive feedback from a lot of your professors, but then you also had professors say, you don't have to create a cohesive body of work. You're not, you don't have to come up with the quintessential Brianna Bass painting while you're at grad school. But I also appreciate the fact that you're saying, hey, maybe there's some logic to that. And I want to maybe give myself some space to ask off kilter questions that have nothing to do with what I'm doing and have a bit of a process going on there and find out some things and who knows what I might discover. And then you said, but I ha- I already know that there's all these other paintings I want to make. And I think that's a really important thing for people to hear because there's two reasons why specifically for an art fight podcast, you're really explaining something that Bruce Lee explained when he was formulating his uh, philosophy of the martial arts. And he basically was like, don't believe people who tell you there's only one way to do something. There's any number of ways to do something. Any number of them could be valid for you. And basically you should take what works and leave what doesn't essentially. I'm, I'm, I'm not saying it anywhere near as eloquently as Mr. Bruce Lee said it, but essentially he said the same thing you're saying, which is that I'm glad you like my paintings and I'm glad you think I should try other things. And I can see how both these things are good for me. 
in the way that I know they are. And that's the decision I'll make about my work. And I think that's important. And I think especially when artists are younger, it's really easy to just take advice is important and having mentors is important and having peers is important. And also doing your best at that time to keep your eye on who you are. You know what I mean? You're somebody, you're the one doing this work. You have, you have an inside knowledge that no one else can have, but, and it's important to honor the fact that if this person says something and you think it's like half, it's only half, you know what I mean? And let it just be half. And you might discover that, oh, it's actually all right, but I was too dumb to know that until I tried it. (laughs) That's, but that's how you'll learn. But I think it's really important to like, even when artists are younger or just emerging or whatever, it's just, or, or later on, it's like you, you, at the end of the day, man, you got to keep your hand on that rudder and make the choices that are the best for you. So I really appreciate what you're saying about that. And the other thing I wanted to say beyond the Bruce Lee thing was, I think that your, your finding this sort of vocabulary for yourself and finding something that has you this passionate and this just excited to the point where you're just like, you just, by the time you're done, you're like already thinking of the different other combinations that that you now want to do. And that's really, that's really great because I think there's probably people who are your peers and beyond that, who they can't find the thing that, that actually is fascinating. You know what I mean? They're, they don't know what their vocabulary is. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So to, to actually have not to say that you'll continue to make these paintings for the rest of your illustrious career, <laughs> but, uh, but you will be, but, but you're somebody who you already know how it feels to come upon an idea that is uh, a, a space that, that you can explore and find. And it'll be easier for you to find more of those things in the future. I think having already recognized a territory and said, Oh, here, I can hang out here for a little while. Yes, this is what it feels like when this when something clicks and something's definitely been through those times when, yeah, I think maybe two years after I graduated from undergraduate school, I don't, I just kept starting all these different paintings and couldn't finish anything just because I like nothing was right. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know what it was. But yeah, I think around like 2016, I started like working with this process of grade gradations and like gradual change and shifting fields and stuff. And that just, so I, I just haven't been able what, to. What it reminds me of is like, uh, <laughs> what it reminds me of is how I've, so most of my youth was wasted on a lot of things, but one of the biggest things I wasted time on was really experimental music. And no, I'm just, I'm joking. I played a lot of experimental music, but it wasn't a waste of time. Okay. But it, yeah, it's a little, little bit of a waste of time. But the idea is just that I, the way I relate to that when I hear what you're saying is it's like I gave myself free space to play and develop and I came up with a lot of things and went real hard for a long time and said a lot of things, played a lot of notes, did a lot of situations, whatever, all this stuff. And then at the time I was with a, a songwriter and she played uh, what you call music and it had structure and intention and architecture and craft. Not to say that experimental music doesn't, but all of a sudden 
my playing music with her and other people in that way, when I got to Nashville, by the time I got to Nashville in 98, I started making music with people that were just incredible writers. All, everything about what I did on every aspect of my playing, you know, what, even no matter what instrument or producing or mixing, everything got so much better because now I had these ready. I didn't realize how much heavy lifting I was doing to try to like Pollock my way through life. You know what I mean? Like, you really cracked the ice this time, Jackson. <laughs> so it, like to have just a recipe or a framework or constraints or whatever, ultimately it's always going to be, a, usually going to be a good thing. And Joe is, Joe's experimental. Have you heard Joe's music, by the way? I haven't. Okay. So Joe's, Joe is a, a sort of, he's straddling time. He's, he's like a, he's like a character, he's like a character in a film from 1964 kind of thing. And it's really beautiful and, and of another time, songwriting, pure. And then he's also very strange. Wow. Uh, so it works out really well, but no, but it's Joe for you is having as much like a wide range of tastes and influences and all these things. I've always thought it's great that like you have the anchor of traditional songwriting and play. you don't have to wonder what the hell I'm doing. I'm standing here. I'm playing right. a guitar. This is a harmonica. This you're not scared of anything. But the worst thing that'll happen is like a protest song and you can just turn it off or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> like if you don't like it. So I, I just always have a deep appreciation for that. And I think everybody has some period of time, whether it's in their beginning or in the middle of their sort of journey of whatever it is they're trying to figure out what they want to do. There's always a period of free play that you've got to put some rails around at some point. And I think that what you're saying, Brianna, is like once you sort of came up with some kind of targets of, I don't know, I'm just going to go here and then accept the output as being the output of this experiment. And I can revere it for that as opposed to it being everything has to be my soul hanging on the wall for others to critique on Thursday at 3 p.m. <laughs> yeah. Don't be late. <laughs> yeah, hey, by the way, like, what's the dirt, right? Let's can we get to the gossip? So, tell me about your cohort. Who's who's the one that's like super competitive, but doesn't, but try, tries to play off like they're not competitive. Yeah. But you could see the competitive wheels let's turning. Do, let's let's do the, name. the art school confidential overlay. <laughs> <laughs> These people are on the internet. <laughs> These viewers up here in the corner are. <laughs> wow, that's the. Oh, and I had heard coming in, like when I visited for my interview, I had spoken to someone who was in the program who was about to graduate. And I was like, are people nice here? And they were like, you'll make friends. Yeah. <laughs> are you'll people nice? People who are nice. And I was like, is there, and they're like, yeah, no, it's cutthroat. Yeah, it's pretty, it's scary. And Hmm. And I was scared about that, but I don't know if it's just that the world is falling apart, that people are like, maybe we're, I don't know. Everyone is so nice in my program and I don't know, maybe I'm naive and I don't know like what the drama is, but I don't, everyone's, everyone seems really supportive and there are a lot of people, so it's hard to get close to to people. Plus, I didn't get hearing aids till like halfway through the semester. So I was, people are scary. What if they uh, me? <laughs> so is this, a, is this, a, I'm going to get too personal. You don't have to talk about it necessarily, but is this a, it's a newer thing for you? Uh, a developing thing that just finally required something or is, uh, tell me about that. I don't actually 
No, for sure. I noticed it about five years ago, but it was probably going on for a lot longer. Mm -hmm. um, I just had a very mean boss who was like, are you stupid? Cause you can't hear me when I'm mm -hmm. whispering behind your back. And then I got hearing tests and indeed there was a problem. And yeah, I guess it has been maybe getting, I guess it's been getting worse and I just didn't have health insurance for a yeah. long time. So you've been coping anyway. So it's, I would imagine for you also, anybody that's, you're not a child anymore. So to take on something like that feels like such a cataclysmic acceptance of some dose of mortality or fragility in some way where it's, I'm going to put that off until I make that formal declaration. It's not something you just take a pill for and, and it's a quiet managed health yeah. issue or something. It's something where it's like, how I relate to space and time and people and everything. Yeah. Yeah. It, there's been a, I, I probably should get therapy, but um, <laughs> <laughs> that's, what we're doing. that's what we're doing here. <laughs> but yeah, it is like a big change accepting this device that I wear in my ears now and stuff. But thinking back on before, it was just, I was just like in the first part of the semester. Yeah. Into the podcast dirt but like I yeah. first critique I was like oh, I never cry in critiques I have a great attitude and stuff but like yeah my first critique we're all in this huge room together there's I don't know a number of people in person with their masks on and I just couldn't I couldn't hear a single word for three hours and oh, I can imagine like, like 20 minutes in I was like I'm gonna cry I need, I'm just going to walk out of critique right now. Cause I just, I can't yeah. deal with this. And I probably cried for two straight days after that, just because I was like, I'm not going to succeed here. And then, yeah, I got the hearing aids and like, I'm just, I'm going to be fine. <laughs> yeah. I would imagine. Yeah. It gets tied with a lot of other, it's probably hard to separate the impact of the sort of me medical or health issue versus uh, you have a choice of maybe how much you other things you put on top of that. And it's probably hard to resist making it a full bore source of a meltdown in a situation like that. That's a lot of pressure. That's a lot of things. I don't know. I, 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 I commend you for that. That's a lot, man. That's, but it's cool. You, you figured it out. You're, you're getting, you're getting sorted yeah. out. It's another reminder to go easy on myself too. Like when I look back and I'm just like, I didn't do this semester as well as I want. I think I can do it this coming semester, but I'm like, I was dealing with a lot. Yeah, giving myself a break a little bit in that regard is like a, a kind way to, to be. I think, yeah, just getting into the best program in the country and then going, leaving home in the middle of a pandemic. I, I, it's okay. You're, you didn't get sick. Great success. <laughs> you know what I mean? Everything else is just frosting, really. Yeah. You know? No, I think it's great. I think it's fantastic. And from what I've seen, you're making a, a very good showing of yourself there. And I think it's a, it's a crazy time. And like you say, I, I was going to ask you about this, but I think you've already summed it up that you, this is your only experience of being at Yale for us for your first year, which will end what it'll end when uh, you'll be a, a year. When will it be the mark in August? Yeah, it'll be a full year when the August semester starts, but okay. my academic year ends in like May or something. Oh, okay. Yeah. Hopefully, man. I'm just hoping by then we're at a point where it's looking, we're all getting ready to hang out again. I've got, my birthday is in June and my goal is to be able to uh, actually see people on my birthday, which would be so yeah. great because I didn't get to see anybody this last time. It was so sad. Me I know. Too. I mean, like I nobody did. Birthday Joe, alone. <laughs> what did you say? 
Joe, when's your birthday again? June 13th. When are you? 28th? No, mine's June 30th. So this is perfect. So you can be like the experiment birthday. You can when's be your birthday, Brianna? Do what? When's your birthday? My birthday was November 18th. So oh, yeah. Okay. Happy birthday. That's still soon enough. <laughs> we were going to, we, we, we didn't podcast on the 18th because it was Brianna's birthday. We took off Brianna's birthday and also Thanksgiving. But yeah, being at Yale, like I'm passing the school of drama every day on my way to school and like the hall, music performance halls and stuff. And I'm like, man, if this was regular times, like I'd be going to performances and like sitting in these. I don't know if you've seen pictures of the campus, but it's like Hogwarts. It's so (laughs) it's old and pretty. And I was just like, I'd be like going through these drafty stone halls to sit in my like architecture lecture where there's every now and then every now and then uh harry potter comes up on the podcast Uh, what what house do you belong to i have uh, tested into gryffindor Uh, okay i've tried to get into slytherin before (laughs) like like a part ravenclaw (laughs) we had a friend of ours that was on here who uh, does an mma podcast and uh, is also an mma journalist and we ended up on this whole tangent about harry potter and i told her how i had discovered that i must have been a gryffindor and then she insisted that i was ravenclaw so this is something we talk about on the art fight podcast (laughs) and just for the record this is something that's come up a lot on this podcast and I know nothing about it. <laughs> I have no, like everybody's speaking gibberish to me. This is me at your first crit or whatever critique yeah. and not knowing what the hell is going on. That's Harry, <laughs> that's Harry Potter to me for the last, however long since Harry Potter happened. When did Harry Potter, whatever, when was Harry Potter born? 20 years ago? I can't remember exactly, but I think... I don't know exactly, but I know when I was growing up, like in elementary school, we would listen to the books on tape on, on like long drives. So I grew up with it and I'm Uh, 30. So something like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's wild. I just, I I don't know. I just, I missed that whole thing. And then I'm not really a sci-fi guy though. Generally, I, I I like to deal in hard realities, Joe. Um, I've been like getting into saga. I'm a speculator. I like to speculate. <laughs> I've been yeah. doing Game of Thrones. I've just started. Ah. I've been doing. I redid all the Star Wars, not all the Star Wars stuff, but a, a chunk of the Star Wars stuff when the Mandalorian came out. And then I've been okay. trying to like redo the or trying to listen to the Lord of the Rings books. So I like the sagas that just go on forever and ever. Have you seen uh, Rogue One? Oh, I forgot to rewatch the new ones, but no, I redid like the one through six and watched the oh, okay. But it's, I haven't, I need to redo those newer ones that just came out because I saw yeah. them when they first came out, but I have been familiarizing myself more with the universe. Rogue yeah. One is, I, I've been finding more and more people who agree with this that Rogue One is the greatest Star Wars film of all time. I'll have to. You've already seen it. Me? No, Brianna. Brianna. Oh, yeah. it's been a while since I've oh, seen okay. it. Yeah, and I need to rewatch it now that I've like brushed up on the canon, kind of the older things and where people are and who they are and their relationships and all of that. But I, I think The Mandalorian is the best movie of all, even though it's a, a TV show because mm. it's cute. 
<laughs> See, I, my, my Star Wars knowledge and experiences. Yeah, I went to all of them when they came out in the movies when I was a kid. The first three or whatever, or whatever, the last three, the first three, I don't know, whatever, man. The, and then, and then I, all those years went by and then we lost Joe. And then, and then for me, it was like, oh, there you go. So for me, it was, I saw them in the theater and then as a kid. And then when they came back and had the one after a long time, whatever that one was, the Jar Jar Binks one or whatever. Oh yeah. The very, the first quote unquote, first one, the fourth that one. Happened. I went to the theater and saw that and I left so tough. in the first like five, 10 minutes. I just left. I couldn't. Yeah. <laughs> it was so bad. Like, actually, I think that's possibly one of the only, maybe I think that might be the only movie I've ever just fully walked out on, but I was, <laughs> I was so, I was irritated because I didn't, I don't know. I, I, I had a feeling it was not going to be great anyways, but uh I don't love him. Like Anakin's not, he's not a guy you love and he's like the star of the show. So you just have to watch him be a jerk the whole time. So mm -hmm. that's, I don't like that, but. My favorite part is I think it's in the, I guess it's in the third one where he does this. He goes after he becomes Darth Vader and he, and he gets up off the table, but he's weirdly like pint sized Darth Vader. Like he's not big fucking Darth Vader. <laughs> he's got like an oversized, the mask is like too big. And then he's, that is insane. <laughs> That's it's insane. How surrealistically terrible those movies got, but there's something about it. Though. Like if it was on right now, I'd probably watch it. Yeah, yeah. I rewatched them and just watched for the, I don't know, like the little things. Um, and that's where you get a lot of the backstory of how Boba Fett came to be, i.e. the Mandalorian story. Yeah. And you're like, oh, they're on, they're like on this planet right now. And this is the, these people that, I don't know, after watching the, the Mandalorian and getting a lot of backstory about different places and different types of creatures and different civilizations and stuff it makes it more interesting to watch those like four three one two and three movies which right. i didn't like before but now i'm like oh i see yeah. what now it's research yeah. <laughs> well, I, have a, I have a quick question like you're brenna you're just you're lighting up just talking about all this and yeah. and then i and then simultaneously as you're talking and i'm just noticing how much you're lighting up then i'm going back and i'm looking at your work and i'm like how do you resist being more uh, pictorial or representational or whatever? Because you seem to have uh, a penchant for narrative in a way that maybe is not being perhaps as acknowledged in, because just being the inherent frameworks of how you're working now don't necessarily bring work in that way. Uh, you're a slave to narrative here. You love narrative. You love story. <laughs> but then you're working in this other sort of iterative ex process. How do you reconcile that? I don't know exactly. There's a lot of baggage that comes with choosing mm -hmm. what to paint. Then I'm not like a, I don't consider myself a very good storyteller in a way. When I travel, I make representational drawings and paintings of as I go. And I like to draw figurative, make figurative drawings. And I really like to work that way but uh do you have one on a napkin right in front of you right now wait do what do you have anything on a scratched on a napkin right in front of you right now you haven't been drawing my portrait this whole time brianna <laughs> <laughs> come on <laughs> doing that doing that weird like i'm looking at you i'm not looking at my hand because <laughs> that's how good i am i think if i do i i think i took it all to my studio 
and I'm um, not there currently. That's okay. I just thought on a lark, I would ask, hey, where are you you currently? Are you in a, like a dormitory building right now? Or are you in a apartment? It's um, yeah, I'm still in the quarantine phase. So I had to get, I got a COVID test every day for the past four days. Um, because it was like not coming back as readable. So I, yeah, I have to get two consecutive negative tests before I can get back into the studio. And I've just been like, wow, my nose with Q-tips every day. Let's just do the show again tomorrow. And then it can be part of, you can just start associating those things with uh, doing our podcast. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Most people feel like doing the podcast is sticking something (laughs) up into their brain. I'm just like, God damn it. Really? <laughs> well, so we, I, where do you give the most information about what's going on with you? What's the hottest channel to follow for, for the kids today? Yeah, I think my Instagram is probably the hottest channel. All right. This is where the action is right here on the screen. Uh, at, at okay. Yeah. And then I keep my website up to date as well as I can when I finish new pieces. So my homepage of my website is all the work that... I finished over the fall. And so once I start creating and finishing and documenting pieces during the spring, I'll move all that stuff into like my, an archive folder. But yeah, everything pretty much stays as well documented as, as possible. But yeah, back to that narrative thing really quickly. I have yeah, yeah, yeah. trying to draw images from my dreams. So mm. there is a bit of that narrative that might start to sneak in some way. Can you relate one of your weird dreams to us? To take things full circle, I recently (laughs) dreamed that I was trying to explain my work from a feminist perspective to Robert California. (laughs) Is that real? Seriously? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And I can't remember what I was telling him, but I feel like I was making some really compelling points and Uh, I probably just with his chin. That's fantastic. So that was, how how did Robert California come up so many times in such different ways spontaneously? The ghost of Robert California. He he exists in all of us now since he is yeah. has disappeared from the television. That's right. Yes. Hey, Joe, do you have anything going on right now that you would actively like to tell human beings about? I've I'm in the middle of a bunch of stuff right now. I've got uh I've got an article in the scene this week talking about Alex Lockwood's new show at at Lusk, which op- opened last week. There's a new show in Nashville, and I d- I reviewed it in the scene this week, and then I also did a review of the show that's at 21C Art Museum Hotel in Nashville, and that one is at uh, White Hot Magazine and uh, WhiteHotMagazine.com, and that one actually. Anybody, even if you're not in Nashville, if you go to the 21C Museum Hotel website and go to their Nashville location and look at their exhibitions, you can find this exhibition, which is like super virtual. Like you can like zoom down into the architecture and then it's you're like a Google Street View in the hallways and you can look at all the art. And then there's like little posts where you can click on little things and it'll tell you a story about the artist and the work and stuff. So that's a that's something you could go to. Go to White Hot Magazine, read my review, and then take a tour yourself of the Museum Hotel here in Nashville. Cool. That's really cool. Yeah. Uh, First year show has that 
feature it's as well yeah you can go in and zoom around and click on the paintings and stuff like that yeah you know i really feel at the end of the day that the pandemic has shown us just how important it is to see art in person i can tell you as somebody who's written about art for fucking 15 years that it that if i see a jpeg in a press release and it looks like it's good it's like just wait till you see it for real because it's way better and i've seen all sorts of stuff that seemed relatively okay whatever some new prints from this person and then i saw him in real life and it was like oh wait a second i had no i had no idea what i was looking at this is amazing because you just can't account for scale texture there's so many things that go into art besides just like what you can get from a picture of art. So I'm looking forward. I'm very much looking forward to mm-hmm. getting into being able to see art again. And also too, the other part of it is I would say 75% of my social life was like hanging out at art shows <laughs> and or working on art shows in one way or another, but in a way that always involved being in a room full of people and, and not having that right now has it's, it's been a it's one of those things where it's really showed you oh man this is like valuable and i'm lucky to have that thing and i i need it back <laughs> yeah the the vacation for all the social anxiety people is going to be over at some point that's right so it's going to be i don't know i feel like i, I have uh, social anxiety but just only it's very selective it's not a condition right it's sort of like this place I'm anxious. Yeah. I feel like there's times when I feel like I just don't want to be around anyone. And then, of course, there's also times where it's I want to be in the middle of everything now yeah. until it's over. And then I want to do it again. So in this case, I feel like I've been starving for that for a while now. And I dropped off some new work over at Red Arrow the other day. And it was like, it's just it sucks going to a place like that. And there was a friend of mine there looking at the show that's up right now. The owner of the gallery was there, but you could even tell we were all just like in the minute, just talking to each other in the space. But it also felt like you didn't feel like you could hang out. You didn't feel like you could give each other a hug. You didn't feel like you could just chill out and talk and you know, oh, I, I'm, I already ate lunch. I'm not going anywhere. I can just yep. hang out here for an hour. It was, it, it still felt like I need to drop off these paintings and leave. You know what I mean? So there's a lot of that weirdness right now. Like I'm yeah. in the first half of this whole time that we've been through so far, it was a lot more sort of meaning to connect with people and this and that. Now I'm just sort of like, I don't care if I talk to anybody. <laughs> yeah. You can just be like, take it easy, everybody and bail. And it's totally like, do you want to, do you want to zoom? No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I hear you on that too. Like seeing paintings in person is so important. And yeah. Paintings, like, especially do what? Paintings, especially yeah, paintings and, and like any thing art related, just the there's something that occurs between you and another object when like mm-hmm. you know, the, your relationship to that object. And yeah, that it's and documenting the color in my work is a night. Oh, God, I was just going to ask because my God. So really quick, what you mean by that is you're talking about trying to get a faithful representation of the colors in your painting in the images that you're sharing, right? Yeah. Okay. Just for for our people who know about head kicks and don't know about uh, photography. (laughs) Well, and also like even just getting a good image of a painting is is 
wildly complicated to do very well in the same way that architectural photography I've learned is I've had some gigs doing that stuff. And I'm like, this is really hard. <laughs> this is really, really hard. I, I wish that I didn't have such an eye for lens distortion. You know what I mean? Because <laughs> it was a better life when I just had no care and I didn't understand. No, but but one thing I think I was going to ask you, because on your Instagram, Brianna, like you have, I was so glad to see a shot that was side view, texture, sort of depth survey. And I, I don't know why, I don't know, like I, I would like to see that even on the website or what, I don't know why more people, especially for people that are really leaning into paint and it's not just uh, soaking into something. The texture is so important here and shadow and all of that. I just, I, I love that you did that. I would love to see more of that. And I don't know why other painters on their websites and trying to deal with this digital divide situation, it's like, man, I would love to see more of that. Yeah, I think we're we're all learning, at least those of us in graduate school right now who are having to do critiques online or we're all starting to learn how important it is to document those those tiny little phenomena that occur like through the making process, those little bits that tell you how what something is composed of or mm -hmm. um that show you like, you know, the accidents that can occur within a painting, which humanize it a lot, which I think is something with with my work, how those like bulbs and the blobs and the little mistakes and stuff, it's not something that you would usually photograph, but when a viewer would stumble upon that in the work in person, they'd be like, oh, it's it's not perfect. And that's what brings it in. But yeah, it's, it doesn't feel natural to photograph all those little things. But I think we're all learning how to, right. that, how to really bring into a greater value those little things that seem to just like simmer around the edges of a piece of of work. Right. Yeah. And I think it's because it's, we're in a time where it's those images are all people are going to have. So they have to, it's like you have to somehow come up with a way to show them, okay, this is the, these are the colors, this is the composition, but then also here's a few details that show you the sort of level of painterly texture that's going on with this thing or whatever. I think it's, it's interesting because there was a, a show that I did at the end of last year at Red Arrow. And I did a painting for that show that was like, just like fucking crazy texture, like just huge amounts of gesso all over the place before I even got to the painting. And when you're, when they took images of the painting head on, it was hard to understand any of that, but luckily they did the last photo that was in their little suite. They had online was a shot from the side. And then you could really tell, Oh shit. There's like, a ton of garbage on top of this yeah. thing. There's, and, there's relief work here. Yeah, a ton of it. And it's and, and you could see it because of that reason. So I think it's like you say, I think that's starting to become a thing where people are realizing that in a way, like the job of the gallery photographer person, it used to be just like showroom. This is going to maybe somebody in Indiana will buy this painting if they like this picture. But now it's becoming more than that. It's it's this is the only way that people can actually explore this work and the camera has to do more. It's almost like people are gonna have to have like backlog shows once this is all clear. Everybody's just gonna have, right. it's, it's gonna be just bonkers. Everybody's got so much stuff. Yeah. New energy, new work, new things, but that's awesome. I wanna start, go ahead and wrap this up. But Brianna, thank you so much for taking the time. It's been yeah. really, it's been really cool. Sorry about the technical Our first guest of about. 2021. Like we couldn't have started it better, Brianna. Thanks so much for your time. Yeah. and. Uh, so everybody, uh, make sure to follow. I'm, I'm going to throw this up on the screen here again. And uh, Insta. you know, Instagram. 
Really cool. And I really enjoy artists coming through on their quest. And then back to this kind of hero's journey, but it's people going off to Europe, going to Scandinavia to go do this program or go do this thing. And then you check back with people and it's awesome. So we'll be keeping up with you and, and Joe, everybody will be keeping up with you as well. I will um, have <laughs> channel to channel this summer. Also, I forgot to. Oh, cool. Red. So Can you run that, run, say that again? Uh, I'm going to have a, a show. I'm showing work with Brian Job this June at Channel to Channel. Brian Job, Brian Job, a former guest on Art Fight podcast, and also now uh, he is recently based in Knoxville again. Yeah, yeah, that'd be cool. And for anybody who doesn't know, Channel to Channel uh, Gallery is uh, a gallery here in in the hotbed of Wedgwood, Houston, Nashville's hottest art scene. Sunday. Art. <laughs> all, right. Well, uh, all right. Thanks, everybody. Make sure to subscribe or do all the things to make sure that if you're one of the most of our audience is still uh, listening through uh, audio channels, but come over to the video side. It's, yeah, not, right. it's, not, it's not too terrible when it works. Yeah. Everybody uh, enjoy the fights this weekend. Enjoy the fights on Wednesday. And I think next Thursday we are there's an elusive Irish MMA journalist who may be joining the show again. I can't say more about it at this point. It's very hush. Just in time for the big one. All <laughs> right. Thanks again. And Brianna, hang out. We'll see you on the other side of this uh, little sign out that we're doing. Uh, but hey, thanks everybody for uh, everybody. Happy new year. We'll see you next week. Word up. All right. See you.